Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, it is the 22nd of March, the second day of spring. Uh, we have a special guest today. Tammy's not here. Um, she's off reporting, but we have Max Reed. Uh, Max is a... Well, Max, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, hi, I'm Max Reed. I'm a, uh, I run a newsletter right now. I used to work at New York Magazine. Um, before that, I was the editor-in-chief of Gawker. Um, and now I have a Substack called Read Max that you can find at maxread.substack.com. Yeah, Max's Substack is quite good. And um, yeah, he's one of my older friends in media. And uh, we're going to talk today about... Andy's here too. What's up? Andy, is it, is, yeah. it, is it spring-like in Philadelphia? Yeah, last weekend it was like 41 day, 70 the next day, you know? So that it's sounds like, like what spring. is going on? Yeah. Does Philadelphia have like the shorts day? Like, you know, what's that? Like well, when everyone like starts the, wearing shorts? Yeah. Like it's the day when like everybody's tired of the snow being on the ground and then there's one warm day and then everyone wears. this is like a Northeastern college. Uh, like it's phenomenon. announced. Like it's announced. <laughs> I don't know if it's called shorts day, but like that's what. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Informally. Yeah. There's the day everyone begins to wear shorts and people everyone like have to talk about the, it. Goes yeah. out on the quad. <laughs> I felt like la last week in New York was definitely people were trying out their like spring and summer outfits. There was like right. one day that it turned out it was like suddenly maybe Saturday was like suddenly seventy, and everybody yeah. was in something not just like shorts and t-shirt, but something new. Like clearly they'd had something sitting in their closet for the last six weeks, and they were yeah. like really excited to try it on. Right, and like the day before shorts day is like or the when people see it coming i think that's the busiest day in tanning salons <laughs> places across the north i only know all of this because i went to college in maine so yeah. we would have like one day in i would say like late april always where it was like unseasonably warm and then yeah. everyone would go out and play like frisbee on the quad. <laughs> and it was like almost like they were cosplaying what they thought a college experience should be right like from a movie like pcu or something like that and like yo summer day drinking let's go <laughs> everyone's in shorts you know? <laughs> but of course because we'd all sat through this horrific main i mean not me you know i'm yeah. a very dark person but you know the <laughs> the the whites would be like super white <laughs> you know? oh yeah, yeah yeah right literally so white, there'd be, yeah. you know it would, be, it would look like uh you know like uh what are those like Flemish paintings or something? <laughs> you like, a like, Bosch, a Bosch yeah. painting. <laughs> they, they have like a, the demons know, the, eating the children. <laughs> all the people are like kind of like uh, you know like they're like uh, stacky and they have like luminescent skin. <laughs> I don't know if that's a Flemish painting, but it's the type of painting that I'm remembering in my head. You need but like that... mountaineering glasses to like sunglasses to stop the glare. <laughs> <Right. Yeah. laughs> oh man. Um, okay. Well, we're going to talk about disinformation today. We're going to talk about the lab leak theory and the two are related. The reason why I wanted Max on to talk about disinformation is because Max has written quite well about tech and these types of ethical questions for many, many years. His Substack does go through a lot of them. I think Max, you not to flatter you here, but I think you wrote the most coherent, like a lot of the most coherent stuff about web three or crypto that I've read, Thanks. um, which was you know, I'm much less skeptical about it than your average media person. But at the same time, I do acknowledge it's very stupid. And I think that there's too much of an impulse these days to just say it's all stupid and it's evil without any curiosity about why it's compelling to people, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. The answer, of course, is, you know, people 
want to get rich quick or they <laughs> want to believe in an alternate world, right? In which they yeah. can be rich, right? But yeah. I don't know, wading through that without with some curiosity is sometimes difficult. Anyway, I feel like you've done it well. So um, yeah, let's, uh, let's start with the article that Andy wrote. Uh, when, when did this come out, Andy? Uh, one week ago, well, Tuesday, one week ago from when this comes out, I think. Yeah. Okay. So Andy wrote recently for M plus one about lab leak, right? And, um, I don't know, Andy, you want to just talk about what you wrote? Yeah. So, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, I wrote this piece about the wet market theory, which was like the only theory at the time. And, um, naturally or unsurprisingly wet market, as a theory gave rise to all sorts of like cultural assumptions is about, you know, backwards Chinese practices and so on. So I was taking that and like showing actually it's more complex than that. It's about global dynamics and so on and so on. Um, and I was asked to kind of talk about this uh, or maybe update this uh, recently. And I was thinking last year, like, well, what market has kind of been sidelined, right? It's especially, you know, last summer, I think we talked about, we had a whole episode about the lab leak theory, which was suddenly, um, uh, like no one, some people actually believe it, of course, but most people were just sort of like concerned trolling. They're like, are we sure that we didn't dismiss this too quickly and so on? But, I, you know, I looked in some numbers and I'm pretty sure like what lab leak circulated far more than wet market had. Um, and um, the polls, the latest polls, at least from like last year, show that lab leak was probably believed by more people in the US and Western Europe than wet market at this point. All right. Even though I should say, I think, the science probably points towards wet market as a total like non-science person. It seems like it's probably wet market, but I think. Well, there was just a report that said it was right. Right. That it came out of. Right. Yeah. So the New York times recently put out this thing, this preprint that said it, it is wet market. If you read the papers, I don't think it actually says too much new stuff. It just kind of. Right. Kind of compiles in people like Matt Iglesias and Alina Chan who believe in the lab leak or like this About doesn't prove what? anything. They're just like, this doesn't prove anything. This is just the liberal media trying to stuff it down our throat. You it's know? a preprint about Matt Iglesias. And no, no, no. The, the, the reaction was by Matt Iglesias <laughs> oh, saying okay. the preprint doesn't oh, okay. prove anything. I was right? like, wow, that's, I don't know. You can yeah. just tweet those things. <laughs> <laughs> you, don't, you don't need to go through a whole process right. of getting a paper, right. a paper approved. Yeah. Uh, yeah, my peer review dunks on Matt Iglesias. <laughs> <laughs> you you um, would have a good response to that. He'd be like, "This is why credentialism is bad." Yeah. I mean, to be fair, the presentation was—it was like, I mean, it was during the invasion of Ukraine, so it was kind right, of weird. Right. But it was it like was little... on the front page, it was like this big bold letters. So you, you thought like some you know smoking gun had been discovered. That's but... what I thought because I didn't read the article. Yeah, I still haven't read the article. Okay, so you're it's saying just, it's not a big deal, right? I mean, I don't. I think for skeptics, it doesn't prove um, anything conclusive okay um it did it did further my belief that yeah it's probably probably wet market i don't know <laughs> you know um but yeah. anyway so so yeah. the point is you know like if wet market is potentially a racist theory right and then a lot of people said well lab leak is also motivated by racism towards china towards asian americans but these are actually like opposite theories right in the sense that the stereotypes they give rise to wet market is china slash you know asian people some generic asian people are um, backwards and they're dirty and they're unhygienic. Lab leak, if you kind of dig into it, and I started reading some of this conspiracy, well, it's published stuff, but I, I could portray it as conspiratorial. They're getting into these like elaborate theories of like bioweapons, secret bioweapons programs, right. how they are, um, 
you know, doing all the sophisticated cutting edge, but also like unethical science, you know, gain of function research. And so there's something that, that's interesting there where like the generic ideas of racism or orientalism don't actually do or do a disservice basically to the distinctions. And if it's the case that, you know, I think wet market was almost immediately, especially by, by like good liberals, right? Kind of rejected, like or the, the racist stereotypes were rejected. Like there was that brief moment where people are like, Chinese people eat bats and mice, but then very quickly people are like, don't do that. You know, I, my friends are Asian. Don't, don't say those things. Right. But lab leak, I think has been allowed to run, run kind of what's the word, like has been allowed to like, has not been shut down. Right. And people are, and people like John Stewart are like, you know, I think it probably is a lab leak, you know, like this is or Bill Maher or something. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So this is like, it's safe to talk about the lab leak in a way that it wasn't safe within sort of liberal PC circles to talk about wet market. So I think, so that kind of leads me to this discussion of, um, you know, I think, and this is, I'm drawing on this work by this uh, literature professor uh, where you live in Berkeley, Jay, um, Colleen Lai, who just kind of says, you know, Orientalism, this classic idea of Orientalism from Edward Said is about Europeans looking down upon the Islamic world. But there's a different kind if we're going to talk about the, the sort of 20th century version of the United States and its relationship to East Asia, which is like a totally different Orient. It's a different set of power relationships. And, you know, this gets into a lot of stuff we've been talking about on the podcast, where like a lot of the stereotypes around East Asians is not about how backwards they are, but actually how modern, advanced, too advanced, they're model minorities, they're whatever, like competing for college spots or whatever. And I think the lab leak theory kind of is playing on this generic idea that China, Asian Americans, Chinese scientists in the United States, right? They're doing the secret, top top secret, super advanced stuff. Right? So it's not backwards, it's like super advanced. And, um, you know, again, since I don't think Do there's like a- Do are mutually exclusive? No, yeah, and that you know that was a good comment. That I mean, I, I thought about this. Like at the you time. could believe, like you know, right, the, the dude who's like doing bioweapons walks right. across the street, right, 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 to the wet market, and is like, "I'll have some pang- raw, right, raw, yeah, yeah, yeah. raw pangolin for lunch," or like, yeah, <laughs> like, their assistance, right. their like, assistance for like clumsy, somewhat, and done, yeah, right, and also racist people can have two totally conflicting sure. uh, yeah. racist thoughts in their head. In fact, it's like <laughs> kind of the norm, you know. Like I mean, it's right. like. Right. Um, it's not know, coherent. Like, it's like a historically you'd think like, oh, well, you know, a lot of racist people in America thought, oh, black people are all cunning and tricksters, you know? And they're also like, oh, well, the black people are all stupid, you know? Like, I mean, like there's, this is, racism is not like right. based on a coherent. Right. And yeah, like people. this stuff is always about probing like people's unconscious assumptions. So it's never like this logically coherent spelled out thing. So yeah, I agree. It's like, it's probably a combination, but I do think that, um, I don't know. I think the conversation would be more would be suited if we kind of acknowledge that there's two kind of almost right. contradictory. No, I agree with that. Right? They are contradictory. Right. Um, Max Reed, are you a lab leak or are you a, <laughs> or are you a uh, wet market guy? I, this is one of those like I feel like I'm trying to be dumber. Like I'm trying to really <laughs> make myself like a low information voter as much as possible. I want to. I just want to be a guy who just reads headlines and just has like yeah. So I'm with Andy. I'm like I don't really know, but seems like it's probably just a, a wet market thing. Yeah. But I will say, like, I was a little bit frustrated. This is not speak to your excellent article, Andy, but um, 
I mean, this is something that has been true over the last like decade or so, but like as somebody who has always had an affection for a good conspiracy theory, who likes like reading a good like secret government lab theory or something, that this got picked up by all these gormless idiots, (laughs) that this sort of became this thing that like Jonathan Chait and Matt Iglesias were pushing. And I was like, this is just like you're stealing my culture. Like I'm the one, you know, I want to be reading this on some like crazy blog somewhere, like not in, in whatever. Um, so I was like, I was a little mad. This is, I, I wish I could do the lab leak, but I feel like my political <laughs> forced me to be a wet market guy. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I think the even more obscure one, if you're looking for an obscure, like undiscovered band, it would be like the U.S. planted it. The U.S. Yeah. had a lab leak. <laughs> planted China. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it does. It does need to align along like everything else these days. Like it lines aligns on like how you feel about cancel culture. And stuff like <laughs> I did like. like I, I had no clue, Andy. Um, something I learned from your Max, article was. You out. Oh, okay. sorry. Oh, I can hear him. Um, this, I had no clue. No, no, I learned yep. from your article was that, um, that one of the components of the theory, or at least one thing that this one guy is saying, is that there's like a secret message encoded yeah, in the right. virus to get out, which just seemed like the both like a, a total airport book, like, you know, airport thriller, like crazy thing, like yeah. such a crazy idea, but really good. Somebody needs to use that like in a movie or something like that. Like, well, yeah, it's, yeah. It's like, like well, narratively well. too perfect. <laughs> no, it's straight out. Of, so like the guy is Richard Mueller. He's a particle physicist, I think, at Berkeley. He's like won, won all these awards. So I think that's why his voice carries authority. But he's not a virologist. Right. right. So he's just kind of. And so he wrote this thing in the op uh, op in the Wall Street Journal. My friend showed this to me. Like he's kind of a borderline, you know. So he's like, <laughs> look at look at this. And uh, so I looked at it, and then he's quoted in this book, which is like an airport book called "What Really Happened in Wuhan" or something. It's like the Australian Fox News person who wrote it. And yeah, he says he's the quote is, "Have you read the Da Vinci Code?" I I have this theory. <laughs> it's just like the Da Vinci Code. And it's sort of like, I almost feel like he intentionally, I mean, obviously, he did not want to put that in the Wall Street Journal. Right. Right. So you have to dig beyond that to like find his real theory. And that's like a perfect example of how a lot of this is just projection. You know, it's like there's the components for both scenarios, but then the 90, not 90. Yeah, like 70 other, 70% of yeah. the rest of it has to be filled in. Right. It would be a cool. That would be a cool movie if somebody like yeah. the good put, a, put like a message <laughs> yeah. in a DNA code. You know what? What are the letters? It's like A C. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just like you know, uh, I don't know how many words you can spell from that. Like it's cat, like Morse code, <laughs> right? Gattaca. You know, it is. Oh. I mean, it does. It does like totally speak to the to the stereotype too, because it's like, oh, it's this anonymous like drone scientist, like held back by the authorities secretly right. trying to communicate with the civilized world in some way or the other. Right. The, and the other thing about it, and so like, I think right now the mainstream publications, The Intercept is the one kind of pushing this the most mm-hmm. because the other aspect of it, it's not really about blaming China. It's about blaming Fauci yeah. and this guy, Peter right. Dazak and like US institutions for covering things up. So Intercept is constantly doing these FOIA things and like publishing their, all their results. Um, and the, so the other thing I was kind of saying was like, you know, the analogy, I think, to this thing that Colleen Light calls the Asiatic racial form Asiaticism is that it's kind of building on sort of the contours of like modern anti-Semitism, right? Which mm-hmm. is that so we're, we're, we're so racial stereotypes about like labor are really about like how a group is like, you know, backwards and confined to their particular part of the world that they came from. Uh, a, a conspiracy organized around racializing a group as capital, which is kind of what I, what I think this is about. So anti-Semitism and the sort of anti-Asian theory is really about how they're 
secretly behind these global networks. And so even if it is about Fauci and Peter Daszak, that kind of still, that doesn't disprove the fact that it's the sort of conspiracy theory organized around that has the shape of a global conspiracy or has the scope of a global conspiracy. Um, so I think that's the acceptable version of the U.S. It's about, and I kind of think everyone hates Fauci at this point for various <laughs> reasons, you know, yeah, yeah, has, liberals do as well. Yeah, he's had a real, real downturn, you know. <laughs> He was like the most popular person ever until Zelensky came along. He's <laughs> <laughs> been supplanted. <laughs> Pretty interesting to see if Zelensky has a similar, similar arc to Fauci because uh, they both sort of are talked about in the same way, you know, like this sort of like, oh, here's our hero, you know. And yeah. um, look, I don't know. I mean, I don't have any problem with Fauci or Zelensky really, but. Um, it is weird to watch. Uh, we, we can talk about all of that in a little bit. Um, I don't know, Andy. So, like, in the how does this sort of how does this work within like the like a lot of what you write about in the second half of this piece is about the world economy, right? Mm-hmm. And the Chinese economy. Yeah. Um, this is you know you are a historian and you're a I think I can say this out loud. You're a Marxist historian, so obviously yeah. this is the, <laughs> that's this surprise, is the, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> surprise. <laughs> Are there non-Marxist historians? Oh, I'd say 99% of them are. Oh, really? The, yeah. I have. I am in the bubble of all bubbles. <laughs> if you read only like books from Verso, you're you're gonna get like the small select slice. Here. I am part of the Verso book club. Yeah, they send me like a book every month. And what was I, the latest? I don't remember anything memorable. No. <laughs> um, no, some of them are really good. I mean, they've sent me some books that I. Uh, I think it was about coronavirus or something like that. What I generally do is I read like uh, the beginning and the end of them. And then sometimes if they're, if they're compelling enough, then I read the middle of them. Right. I forget what the last one was, but That's yeah. good practice. Um, yeah. 99% are not Marxist historians. Um Okay, what about on yeah, Twitter yeah. with over 2,000 right, uh, yeah. followers? <laughs> no, but that's like, isn't that, that's all the resistance guy. Like, I feel like a huge portion of the resistance was like liberal, non-Marxist historians. Of course, Yeah, no, for sure. Like the Kevin, true. I mean, I don't I don't think he's offended by it. I said like Kevin Cruz types, right? They're not Marxists. Yeah, exactly, They're just right. like true blue believers, like, you know? Right. Like somebody has to write books that your uncle buys for, you know, yeah. to like read right. or whatever. Like no, that's, that's true. What about, uh, what's variety. it called? What about... Um, what about uh, the dude who wrote the capitalism essay and wrote um, "Evicted," whose name I can't remember right now? Uh, Matthew, what's his name? In Princeton? In Matt Matt Desmond. Yeah, yeah, Matt Desmond. Um, well, so this is like a debate, uh, which is like, so he was like the one who wrote the capitalism essay in 1619 right, right, Project, right? right. That's what he's talking about. There's this debate about like, what do we make of this now, like very commonplace argument, right? That America was founded upon slavery. American wealth is founded on slavery. Capitalism right. is founded on slavery. Um, and I don't, I don't want to like bore listeners, but you could say like there's small, like different assumptions or arguments along the way that might, you know, I would say like that stuff is actually quite compatible with like liberal identity politics. Um, okay. Right. Um, Are all of you on a text chain? <laughs> we have one. I have, yeah, I have several text chains. Uh, yeah. I, I asked that knowing that the answer is yes, just from, yeah. not from you. But from I mean, others. liberals are on text chains too. This isn't a secret. <laughs> Are you on any Who isn't on a text, text chain? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. I mean, I'm not on that many. I'm on like two. <laughs> one of them is with Max. Um, <laughs> I would not uh, describe our group text as Marxist, Jay. Yeah, that's the definitely not are... historians, definitely not academics, right. and definitely not Marxists. <laughs> yeah. It's more like 
uh, you know, well-heeled shit poster. <laughs> I would describe right. it as Jay describing his gambling losses to an audience of sympathetic men. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was this weekend. Oh, my God. It was oh, not this weekend? What did you lose? Oh, yeah. It didn't go well. I, it, I didn't games? lose that much money. But I, well, I, you know what? I'll just take a pause here to explain what Las Vegas was like this week because I went to Las Vegas for a couple days. Holy shit. For March Madness. Okay. It was like crazy. And um, I've never seen it that crowded before. And every single person there was like in their 40s or 50s was a dude and was like uh, and was with like six other dudes. Right. Um, that included me. I was like one of those <laughs> two. And so and then it was the first day of the tournament was also uh, St. Patrick's Day. So you can imagine, yeah. you know, I mean, it was awful and nobody was wearing a mask. Right. Everybody was slammed into like these tiny spaces together and uh you couldn't place a bet because the lines were too long like for the sports you know for the actual tournament you couldn't get in a restaurant because the lines were too long and uh you couldn't really do anything because it was too crowded What's it was the... crazy. Every, i think everyone collectively was like let's let's go let's bros time to leave the fam at home you know? <laughs> let's go get wild which is what my thinking too you know, so i don't judge these people Wait, but it was it was not fun why would you go to vegas instead of gamble on your phone and watch tv at home like it's not closer to the sport what itself, type of is question it? is that, you know? <laughs> i guess but you're not like watching the you're not like watching the boxing event you know like yeah i know but you know you, you just want to watch them, like a bar with a, like 30 tvs well, it's in a sports book with the world's largest televisions. But yes, we couldn't yeah. even get in there, you know? Yeah. It's fun. I don't know. It's usually fun, but um, it was really not fun this time. And uh, <laughs> I've been constantly testing for COVID since I got back because I was like, if I didn't, if none of us got COVID this trip, it means COVID is fake. You know, <laughs> that was my, my thinking because it was so, it was so crazy in that sort of way. But um, I don't know. I'm clear so far. Do you it. bet on UNC or just avoid betting on UNC because you can't? No, be I did. I did. Because, but, you know, I don't know. Like when you're deep into a gambling problem, you don't make <laughs> estimations like that. You know, you don't go like, oh, am I going to be too emotionally invested at the end of this game? Because there's no actual inve emotional investment to your bet. You're just doing it because you're bored, you know. It's, like, it's more like, like, can I actually get this bet down in time? Um, but no, I didn't. I didn't win or lose very much money. Um, but it was like a horrific experience overall. Also, flying these days is crazy. Anyway, um, what were we talking about? The Chinese economy part of the essay. Oh yeah, good lord, that was like <laughs> ten minutes ago. Right. I so, mean, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, that was that's why I was like, "Is Andy here at Marxist?" Right. <laughs> when Tammy's not here, it's, you need Tammy to like really make sure everything is staying on track. Uh, it really doing, is true. I'm not doing a good job of it. Sure it really is true. <laughs> um, I'm like free to go totally out the rails here. All right, so Andy, yeah. let's finish out. You tell us about like how this relates to the sort of peak of the Chinese economy a few years ago. Uh, yeah, I mean, the point is, I kind of do this like armchair psychology thing about like, why is this, why is this lab leak theory so plausible? Why does, why does everyone believe in it, even if there's no necessarily like real evidence? And, and I say it basically maps onto people's rising antagonism towards China uh, as an economic threat. So especially in like the richest parts of the world, places that were the richest parts of the world, Western U.S., Europe, uh, Western Europe, U.S., Japan. Um, and 
you know, for that conspiracy or for that kind of antagonist. And there's other examples like <clears throat> the conspiracy that China was spreading COVID through uh, 5G towers. There's the China initiative in the, or yeah, China initiative in the US where they're arresting scientists, right? For a lot of this particular racialization of China as an economic threat to really take hold, there has to be this belief and also with the bioweapons program, like this belief that like China is like this coherent thing with right. a plan and so on and so forth. And the last part is just the kind of delves into like some admittedly like pretty nitty gritty stuff about um, China, China's economy the last 20, 30 years to say like, well, China's economy isn't even like real, you know, like it's a lot of stuff is happening around the world. Just like any other major country, a lot of these forces collide in China, but like China's not in control either, right? They also are dealing with a crisis. When 2008 happened here, this had reverberating whatever domino effects in China. Um, I don't mention this, but like 2015 is this big event that I've recently been kind of hearing people talk about. Like in 2015, there was a bunch of capital flight in China stock market collapse. And that was also this turning point where their party was like, all right, too much of this capitalism, free market stuff. We have to get back into control of the economy. So you have all these headlines this last year. Listeners have probably heard about like Evergrande, this big developer that collapsed. Um, there's been a lot of other efforts to like crack on Ant Group, Alibaba, right? And that's not a sign right. of the party, you know, being authoritarian for the sake of being authoritarian. It's because they're reacting to these global forces that they feel like they can't control. So they have to like do something, right? So the point is, you know, like, and to perhaps generalize it, you know, the point is like, I think a lot of conspiracy theories get their juice out of the fact that people feel like they have no agency in the world and uh-huh. they're looking for like the big, real thing that's in charge and so like my little gestures to say well there is no like china's not in charge either you know like they also are like right. reacting defensively just like the us is so, got it yeah but yeah. I, you know i feel that made me start to think about like, conspiracy theories more and you know how much are all of them um kind of rooted in this sense of like great no, segue yeah <laughs> we have no power we have no agency there has to be and this, it is like you know. commandeer the segue portion of our podcast for the past few months and he thinks i don't notice but <laughs> noticing this is this podcast gentrification <laughs> and i'm the gentry and he's and he's and he's gentrifying my space here <laughs> um okay so let's talk about that then i mean look I've written about this a little bit more than I actually thought I would. And Max, I know that you've thought about this a lot. You've written about it too. And Andy, you know, this, I think this lab leak theory is also, you know, that the fundamental, one of the fundamental questions you're asking in this piece is whether or not is basically just like, why do people believe different stuff? Right. Like, and I think that we have like, I think I did not think just to be honest that we would reach this point of, chaos you know um and uh where and it's actually been weird in that it sort of like has made me much more resistant to going on social media than i have in the past you know where it just it seems crazy right now i might be wrong it might have always been crazy and maybe i was just like more into it and i'm growing older or something like that but you know between covid between people believing completely opposite things about vaccines, right? Between, um, but, and, and the election, Trump, everything like that. And now Ukraine, like, it seems like we're in this new space. So Max, I wanted to ask you, you know, like, what's your general, you know, what's your general take on disinformation? Has it changed over the past three weeks? That's a good question. I mean, I think I'm, I've been one of the interesting things 
you know, you don't want to be too sort of academic about looking at a situation like the Russian invasion of Ukraine and say, oh, this is like interesting as a as a as a study or whatever. But <laughs> it, it's like it's pretty interesting seeing the um, the energies of like the disinformation brigade, not really sure how to handle like an actual ground war between two uh, relatively well-resourced armies um, in just in the sense that like both Russia and Ukraine are putting out an amazing amount of propaganda exactly the way you would expect. I don't mean this in a sort of judgmental way, exactly right. the way you'd expect two armies at war, but because we've got this kind of mini industry in the media that's emerged over the last half decade or so really dedicated to the idea that like disinformation of any kind is a problem um, I'm not sure that there's been a, a like a good reckoning within the bigger sort of mainstream institutions about how to encounter this. You know, what like something I'm thinking about, I, I don't know that you would call Vice a mainstream institution, but there was a big piece in Vice just like last week or two weeks ago that was like, <clears throat> these these leftists are sharing Russian disinformation. And what they what people were doing is they were sharing true things that 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 were that the Russian various Russian government bodies and and you know state affiliated mediated were saying and nothing that was being said was like was incorrect at all so it, it would be totally wrong to call it disinformation um, but people have this kind of idea this framing of this kind of information war that requires you to only say the things that are right or convenient for your side yeah. or to to make sure these things you know none of this is like not obvious if you take a second to stop and think about it. But I'm, I, I'm, I've been interested just like looking at these things and seeing that there's not, um, there isn't, there isn't a kind of the, the, the political commitment seem to be shining, shining through over the kind of, you know, uh, normative commitments to infer to like so-called disinformation. If right. That makes sense. Right. For sure. <clears throat> Andy, what are your thoughts? Wait, so to clarify, Max, you're saying like, are you kind of saying like disinformation is used as a way to, cloak which are basically partisan battles like yeah i think they're so. anti-russia I mean, yeah i mean i think there's like this this i mean just to put it in more in more blunt terms like you know you have a lot of people who are like disinformation is the reason that people voted for trump so my, right, i'm going right, to go right. out and i'm going to battle disinformation and then you get into a situation where ukraine is as a component of its informational campaign in its war against russia is sending out disinformation uh, you know making claims about uh what's happening in the war that are plainly not true. And on the other side mm -hmm. of it, Russia is making claims that are, in fact, true. But to the extent that you spread them, you are potentially aiding the Russian right. war effort in one way right. or another. Yeah. Right, and right. it's interesting to see this sort of the, the truth campaign kind of uh, abrogate itself a little bit when it encounters a situation where the politics are not quite as cleanly cut as they might have been in the first place. Right. You know, and, uh, like, what else did we expect? It's not like this was, it was totally unpredictable. But it, I mean, as a way of answering Jay's question about sort of, you know, it is, has it changed? I think that's, I think we're watching the sort of the machine that got created, the sort of media machine, the meme machine that got created in the wake of the Trump victory kind of run into a new, a new uh, phenomenon that they hadn't really thought about how to encounter. Yeah. And, I, and I think that criticism has like less force. I'm just like speaking anecdotally. I don't really, yeah. I'm not compelled by our, you know, like if someone says this is disinformation, I'd just be curious, like, well, what did they say? You know, and like yeah, I, can right, judge, right. I can judge for myself, you know? Right. I think you're alone. I think we're like, I, I feel that way too, but I think that we're like kind of. We're outliers. When, yeah, I think we're outliers in terms of like a type of progressive educated group on the coast. You know, I think that most people do think that disinformation is a huge problem. 
I, I mean, I don't think it's not a problem. I just think that like, you know, it's it, the way that it's been framed by the people who are tasked to frame it in a way is like a little bit weird to me, you know, but yeah, I, I was spending, I spent quite a bit of time last night, like reading up on the, you know, like the right wing in Ukraine. Right. And, um, I've read the stuff I usually read, which is like, whatever, you know, the, financial times or the new york times or um a bunch of like foreign policy or something like that you know and then i but then i went online and it's like or on on social media and it's like it's actually a bit i don't know it's a bit concerning to me <laughs> yeah like it's just like it's crazy how much the two accounts of how many nazis there are in ukraine changes you know and like uh for some people like nancy pelosi saying like glory to ukraine was like a you know was like a was like a uh, nod back to like the 40s or something like that or the 30s when like um you know some uh, very famous ukrainian like right-wing person like was aiding the the nazis and like his descendants and the people who were who were involved in all of that are still there and those are the people who are like part of the azov like whatever like you know like all of this is is there and i was thinking about it and i was like well, I don't think Nancy Pelosi was probably thinking that hard about it, you know, <laughs> but like it does like, you know, like there is certainly like a troubling number of people who are direct descendants or are the actual like these aren't really like cosplay neo-Nazis. These are like actual Nazis with lineage back to World War Two. And so it's really strange to see like where um, now they generally, you know, it seems like in elections they vote like it was like three percent of the of the vote is for like this, this party, but so it's not big, but you know, it's just weird to watch like, you know, sort of this liberal media people battling it out with like either leftists or people on the right to, and the actual question is like, how many Nazis are there in Ukraine? <laughs> you know, <laughs> which like nobody really actually debated before the war, right? Like the, the, the answer was like, Oh, actually there's kind of a troubling number of these people, right? Like that was always the, the standard line. And now it's become no, actually there aren't any, right. you know, like, in fact, if you believe that there are, then Putin right. has won <laughs> and you're buying Russian propaganda. And Max, like you said, the problem is that when you see the videos of what some of these uh, right wing, like, you know, paramilitary groups are doing in Ukraine and it's all some like, sh you know, shitty cell phone video or something like that. That is all Russian propaganda. Right. Right. I mean, Doesn't literally, mean it, like, it's like the Russians are spreading it in, right, for the right. effort of winning their information, whatever war. Right. And you can't really. I do understand why the response to that is like, fuck Russia, fuck this, this isn't real. That also seems like a crazy position to take. Right. I th like what it sort of convinced me of is that gen this generation, like from Gen X down, actually, because all of our wars are fought in places where we can't, we don't really give a shit, you know, like, uh, like, you know, Afghanistan or Iraq or ISIS or whatever, like ISIS put out a ton of propaganda, you know, uh, I remember like I wrote this piece and it, you know, I was watching like a whole bunch of ISIS propaganda and it was all like fashioned after call of duty you know like they would basically make it look like a they would show videos of them like running around with guns and shooting people and they would make it look like a video game to try Some and recruit those, young people those isis videos they got they had like that was right when hd video was getting really easy to right. you could get a good hd camera and you could also share hd video and some of them are like 
I'm, uh, I don't think this is something I can get canceled for saying, but like aesthetically, they're like beautiful. Like some of them are incredibly <laughs> beautifully shot, like yeah. a be- like striking. Um, obviously, I don't support ISIS. <laughs> Nobody who's listening should support ISIS. But if you want to see a good movie, <laughs> say what you will about ISIS, but their video editing—they really know their way around an edit booth. You know? <laughs> their color correction is amazing. You know, so like, um, I, I. I just think that people in the West don't don't engage with that, right? Like because they don't feel an emotional attachment to it because it's just brown Muslim people, right? And um, there's no moral ambiguity that they have to feel or anything like that. And um, you know, if you were against the war, which many, many, many people were, it was mostly like because you're against wars, period, right? But it wasn't like you believed in the sanctity and the beauty of the Iraqi people in the way that people seem to be believing in the sanctity and the beauty of the Ukrainian people, right? And so, I don't know. I think it's like the first time a lot of people are encountering a ton of propaganda at once, and I think that might be part of it. Like, it's just sort of like, you know, we're like an unvaccinated and uh, <laughs> never had coronavirus body that that this stuff is entering into. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're talking about the in, in the international sense, but domestically, um, like the you know, isn't the disinformation stuff all all about like Fox News and like domestic politics and how, you know, like Fox News just made it okay to basically play fa- fast and loose with the with the truth, um, and then, yeah, but you're kind of saying like they didn't they weren't prepared to understand like a part of the world that, that they had no like direct experience with. Well, I just think that they care less, you know, like, and I don't think it means that the anti-war protests were less sincere or whatever. But I right, think that they have saying, less less right. of like an emotional attachment to it because all things in the Middle East to most right, people right, right. in America are just the Middle East. But with you know? Ukraine, you feel like people are now like getting really invested in it. Um, right. And they also so have intense. to learn everything on the fly. Like right. we had a lot of years, I don't know, since I was like eight years old or whenever, you know, uh, Norman Schwarzkopf and whatever. What right. was it called? Schwarzkopf, um, yeah. No, but what was the operation? Desert Storm. Desert Storm, Desert right? Storm. Like, We've had, we like, I was eight when I think Desert Storm happened. Maybe I was 10 or something. So my whole life has just been conditioned to like under, like a very baseline understanding of every conflict in the Middle East as being exactly the same, basically. You know, you you just swap out the year. But this is like a new thing to learn. And I just think that people are in some ways also trying to scramble to catch up in a way. And a lot of questions are questions like how many Nazis are there in Ukraine are not like they're not known. Although even though if you Google a little bit, like you can just find that the answer, it's still like a contested question. Yeah, there's I mean, I think it's worth saying, too, like this is not part of what's at stake is that there haven't um, like what, what, how do I how do I put this that like the 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 structure, the way that we encounter this stuff when you're doing it on Twitter, both the way that you read about these things and you learn about events that are happening on the war and the way that you like engage in the discourse yourself is very different. I mean, obviously very different from like Desert Storm, right? Where it's like right. what you got was what the main networks told you, what papers told you. You could it's not like you couldn't find right. if you wanted some dissenting analysis from the nation or whatever. Right. But uh, there just wasn't this like, kind of spread of voices and you weren't necessarily obligated in the same way or didn't feel the obligation that it certainly at least that people on Twitter feel to engage, to take particular sides, to like have a, have a take on it one way or the other. And, you know, even for Iraq and Afghanistan, 
Um, and frankly, even for like the operation in Libya, like it, 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 it's, I think it's both a component of what Jay is saying about the kind of the racialized nature of this stuff, the proximity to, to what we understand to be like us um, or to white people, but also the kind of acceleration. Uh, of the, like, yeah, sorry, <laughs> wrong podcast. Absolutely Next. the wrong you're like podcast. The you're, like, you're like the second white guest we've had. <laughs> I, I want to be very clear when I say us, I mean my us, not the us of the podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry, keep going. Yeah. Um, you just like you, you there were, we're still sort of grappling, like, and by this, by we, I mean like Americans, college educated Americans on Twitter in general, that like works. Sort sort of grappling with how to how to like be a part of this and this the, the one of the things that i keep thinking about is the framework of information war the framework of disinformation is a really bad framework for thinking through the question of yeah. like how you know how do you grapple with events that are unfolding on the ground that you have no real control over that you have no that you don't know what to say about or right. you don't know what to think about them and trying to imagine it in the sense where it's like you like even down to the sort of psychological idea that like, I think a lot of liberals feel that like you have to be out there like squashing right. disinformation and like, and like the spreading true information is probably not only is it like not helpful in any kind of broad sense, it's probably like punishing to you psychologically. It's probably right. right. Now that's, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about it before, <clears throat> which is that this, the, the fight against disinformation for information about Ukraine is actually just like a consumer Converse, well, yeah, per individual yeah. consumer thing right. right it's just like am i well informed in the right way it's like listen we're not doing shit about it you know right. like we can't do anything about it and like the idea that we can like well if we we're all better informed then we could exert you know pressure on biden to make a different decision and like i don't know <laughs> you know yeah. like that seems like kind of far-fetched <laughs> we're like almost powerless in this situation and that, yeah. I mean, Andy, go ahead yeah, sorry I mean, yeah, just along the same lines, I've actually kind of had this opposite experience where I feel like people are, at least my <clears throat> differently curated timeline is like less engaged with it. And these debates are not that fierce precisely because, you know, that first week it's like, oh, we all had like a task. We had to like learn about Ukraine and Russia and why this is happening. Now there's, again, like we all kind of realize like no matter how strongly we feel, no matter how truthful, you know, our opinions are, like we can't do shit about it. Yeah. Um, and our basic position has always kind of, I think for most of our health has always been like, minimal intervention i guess there's right. these debates about sanctions and so on and so on but right. um no one's really there isn't like a real debate about like should the u.s military invade and all that stuff so no. that's off like, the table so right. right so like there's no th these debates kind of feel like low stakes um yeah. obviously not low stakes for like in reality but like among you know like people who are on twitter right yeah, I mean, I think it relates to what you were saying about conspiracy theories, Andy, that there's like part, some component of this is just about how do you, like, if you are confronted with a constant stream of new information that you, you yourself, not just, you know, information, the flow of like, of, of news and whatever else, like, how do you control it? Like, how do you re regain some sense of control over right. the world? And like, having a theory, whether it's like, you know, China is the puppet master, or even if it's just like, your theory is just this kind of vague sense that there are evil Russian trolls out there who are spreading disinformation, and you, citizen soldier have to stop them. Like right. that does give you, hopefully, I mean, I think for some people, at least it gives them a sense of like, I can... I can I can do something here. Yeah, I mean, and also what you're saying, Max, is like beneath this disinformation stuff is really just an anti-Putin sentiment, right? And I think a lot of this stuff is basically 
anti anti China, anti Putin, anti US empire. These are like the three basic <laughs> right positions. You know, positions that you can have yeah. at this point, right? <laughs> and you gotta like choose one. Is right. Empire is anti Empire really one though? Like I don't know. I mean like, I did like, like split I feel like that's one of those things where I felt like 70% of historians in America are Marxist historians. (laughs) Well, empire is weird because it could, it's honestly like very compatible with like nativist politics. It's like, get out of, get out of our place. But are any of the right wingers making that argument right now? Like it would be interesting if they were right. But like there, it doesn't seem like it. It seems like they're all sort of anti, they've sort of gotten in line with supporting Ukraine and Oh and, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, no, for sure. But I guess in the sense of you know, like very famously, and maybe we're making too much of a big deal out of this. But I think the initial DSA statement was like, "This yeah. is all NATO's fault." That was oh, a yeah. sort of the U.S. is the real puppet master. Okay, and, but we, right, we I, I put in my notes to myself for this podcast. Never to no DSA. DSA. <laughs> <laughs> Five letters N O D S A. I can't have this conversation anymore. Sure, you know, sure. Like, you, yeah. yeah, you have to with the committee of to, to time to say goodbye has to put on a. <laughs> I know. I can't reveal how. I, I can't. I can't further reveal how cloistered my worldview is. I already gave away the farm. I'd be like Andy, you and all the Marxist historians. In the world. Is Gordon Wood a Marxist historian? I don't think so. I think. No. I mean, that's a different. Yeah, we're talking about like the 1619 controversy and all that. No, I'm just asking if he is because oh. he's like one of the more famous ones because I don't know. he was in Goodwill Hunting. I was gonna uh, say. <laughs> I yeah, I don't know. I, Nell yeah. Irvin Painter is a Marxist historian. I she no, is. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> what do, you mean? do you have the? I don't, do have, have, a, like I don't the, have. I don't have an index. I, I think that through. we now understand who the highest. <laughs> the most intense purity tester of Marxist historians in the group of Marxist historians. <laughs> was that a club? People aren't trying to get into the club. That's what I'm saying. They don't want to be painted with a red brush, you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. There's, you know, there's no more room left in the Marxist historian group chair. <laughs> this is going to be evidence in like the Barry Weiss house on the Marxist historian trial. <laughs> this article that you wrote for the guardians is a little bit lib to me <laughs> you're tooted um yeah i don't know but the other the other thing that i wanted to say about this was that um i feel like um i don't know it's it seems like we're that a good portion of americans and i'm talking about the ones not the ones who were like in las vegas with me but like you know people who want to be engaged in the world and I feel this myself, even as somebody who, you know, like, I think that I ideally would have better access to information, you know, like there is a, I think people are better informed about conflicts than before. Right. And they want to be, and there's more information for them to take in, but at the same time, it's very hard to discern. And so we're in this like very strange place where people do have advanced opinions about things like the Russian inv- invasion of Ukraine that I don't think would have been true of desert storm. Right. Like yeah. I don't. Um, and, uh, and yet like, it seems kind of unsatisfying, I think for everybody, because we can't sort any of the information out. Right. And then people's trust in the institutions that used to be tasked with sorting them out is like never been lower. Right. Like, yeah. I mean, nobody trusts any newspaper at this point. Right. 90% of the conversation on social media is like a meta conversation about not trusting old news. Uh, I mean, most of it's about sports, but like, you know, the part that's not about sports or crypto is like people screaming about the media. 
and also in sports and crypto. I was going to say, that's Twitter, also what all people the sports are at the media. <laughs> yeah. Okay, sorry, take it back. All Twitter subsets are like screaming, even like euphoria, you know? It's like it's like finding like the one person who's like, you know, works at Screen Daily or something like that. And it's like, you know, I think that Sydney Sweeney is a bad actress. And you're like, motherfucker, or whatever, you know? Um, yeah, it's just screaming at the media. And so like everybody's kind of out to in the space where they have to kind of, I don't know. It makes me sound like I'm like an institutionalist here in some sort of way, but like, uh, I just think it's like a very weird compromise and vulnerable space that everybody is in. And then they can just believe whatever they want, which is like basically what happens. If you go down one of these, like how many Nazis are there in, um, in, in Ukraine? Um, like it's nuts, right? I can totally see how somebody could become convinced in two hours that Ukraine is full is like 90% Nazis and that Zelensky is compromised by the Nazis, even though he's Jewish, you know, like he's like, he's like their puppet to hide their Nazis. Like that's the argument that's out there. It's fucking everywhere, you know? And, um, there is like a coherence to it, right? Like, because they can just say like, I saw this meme that was everywhere and it was like the media before, um, whatever the date of the invasion was. And it was just headline after headline of all these mainstream media places talking about Ukraine's Nazi problem, you know? Mm. And then after the first day of the invasion, you know, mm. um, you know, like praise Ukraine or something like that. Right. And like, like that sort of stuff is super powerful, but like, um, how did, I don't how, know. Jay, how did it, you go I, down this rabbit hole? Like, <laughs> I, I, well, I was just like reading about Nazis in Ukraine. And then I just like, like I said, I just decided, let's see what's on Twitter. But this is a relevant debate in Twitter or in, among media about, about. No, the, well, that's the, well, that's their proof that it's true is that the mainstream media is ignoring it, you know, right, and that people right. are denying that it's true, Yeah, which is one of those like instances which is just true of so much of the online which is that right. if you can prove that a mainstream media source doesn't matter how minor it is it could be somebody with one byline or something like that is sort of purposely not telling the truth or you can sort of project that they're not purposely not right. telling the truth about something then you have like all the power in the world right <coughs> i mean same thing with all this uh cancel culture stuff or vaccines or something like that right like you see one video of somebody who's fucked up from a vaccine and then you just say the mainstream media is saying that nobody gets messed up from the from the vaccine. They're clearly lying. Here's a video evidence, right? Yeah. And then you sort of string together. Yeah, but, I mean, don't you guys? This is all like very impressionistic, but I feel like conspiracy has really ramped up in the last. I mean, nine eleven is like the first real one. I feel like a live one. You know, like you heard about the moon landing as a kid, but it was like a not a real conspiracy. Um, you know, like they made fun of it on The Simpsons, but like. 9-11 was like a real one. Like I knew family members who got caught up in it and I knew yeah. real life people who got, and I, at this point I feel like everything is a conspiracy theory. Like even <laughs> things that are like normal opinions are framed as conspiracy theories, you know, yeah. like, like Jay is saying, like it's a media critique. It's about this sort of secret thing that there, no one's telling you. It's not right. just, yeah. it's not just like, this is wrong and this is right. It's like, they're hiding the truth from you. Yeah. This is also in my notes. No New York times. Actually, I'm going to actually hold by that one okay <laughs> i was just gonna say i i wrote a piece for new york mag um about that was just sort of it's just not not a long one but i spent a little bit of time just like reading about the various sort of political and historical and social scientific theories about why people believe in conspiracy theories and it helped me it's helped me sort of think about this because i don't think any of these there's i think i had four or five different kind of 
broad theories about conspiracy theories, and none of them are necessarily um, uh, mutually exclusive. It's like all there's all these things, and and you know some of it is is really there. Are, people have believed in conspiracy theories since the dawn of modernity, basically. That like we have that the, the the founding fathers. There's a lot of speaking of Gordon Wood. There's a lot of good like American history work done about the belief of various. Uh, most of the people who wrote the constitution that there was like some kind of conspiracy against them to right. end liberty or whatever. And some of them thought it was like the Jesuits or the Catholics or the, or whoever. And right. then in some cases they actually were conspirators themselves that they were, consp- you know, they, they had put together a small group of people to quietly plot to overthrow the government, which is about as close to a conspiracy as you can get. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's like, like we were saying, there's this sort of psychological idea of trying to gain control over conspiracies. But I think the thing that you're talking about, Andy, the, the sort of the question of why it feels like, and as you say, it's impressionistic. I don't, you know, I don't know how true it is, but why it feels like conspiracy theorizing has sort of ramped up over the last say 20 years. And we should say, you know, JFK is like, that's the big, dad of conspiracy theories in the 20th century. Like a turning point? I think, I mean, I think so, but, okay. but like, I, I don't disagree that the something about 9-11 and the times that yeah, I mean, since yeah. then is like the, the <clears throat> it's accelerated. And I think it's what Jay's saying about the decline of trust in institutions, that you end up yeah. in this place where, um, you know, you don't want to make the mistake of saying like there was always, everybody believed the same thing in 1955 or whatever, but right, like, right, there right. was clearly like a hegemonic idea about what the world was, how it worked, <clears throat> who was doing stuff, who was in power, how, how things happened. And that has just been whittled away and you can blame neoliberalism or you can blame capitalism. Immigrants. Blame immigrants. <laughs> exactly. Trans people, whatever you want to do. But it is really obvious to me that there's like a real crisis in trust in institutions. And I think it's one of these really weird things. If you're coming from the left, like you can be in this really weird, there's a great yeah. book um, by a sociologist, a political economist named Will Davies. I can't remember what the name of the book is. Um, maybe we can put it in the show notes or something. But, you know, his his point is that the, the what he writes about is that we're we're sort of hitting this crisis of liberalism. And the the thing about you can you, you know, we all hate liberalism because we're on Twitter and we know that liberals are annoying and all these things. But you can make this you can make a really <laughs> obvious, and really easy case for liberalism over sort of chaos, war, right. the 30 years war, you know, European religious wars, whatever, because it provides a way to generate a lot of like violent political energy into systems of disputation. And when that starts to get whittled away, you're in this, especially if you're coming from the left, you're in this awkward position of being like, liberalism sucks. It's wrong. It's like wrong about how humans work. It's wrong about how politics works. But gosh, I would prefer that bad thing to like just endless sort of strange mutating kind yeah. of like chaotic Twitter, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and I think right. like, so that to me is like the big task. One of the many tasks of any kind of like realistic left of the 21st yeah. century is like, okay, so if liberal institutions are, are dying or they, there isn't enough trust to create a functioning society anymore. Like what, what are we replacing them with? What right. comes next? What right, comes right, after right. that? Totally. Um, I mean, assuming that we really think for all we know, this is we're in some weird interregnum and it's all going to Joe Biden's going to bring back trust in government somehow. But yeah. I don't oh, God. I know it's not, you know, I feel weird about it for what you're talking about here, Max, because like, I think that there is a large part of everybody, especially, you know, at our advanced age with children, the three of us are dads, you know, three dad podcast. You kind of like the, the unknown, even if has a small chance of sort of, of eventually ending up in the left that you want is very scary 
you know, and yeah. that I totally understand why people sort right. of default to a type of liberalism after they have kids and stuff, because it's just like, well, I don't know. Like, <laughs> we kind of seem to be at a point where, yeah, I mean, I felt I felt much differently two summers ago during like all the nationwide protests because there was such a massive outshowing and there was so much there seemed to be a real coherence to it. But now it's just like, well, maybe things will fall apart and we'll reorganize ourselves in some sort of better form. But that's terrifying. Right. <laughs> I let any like to your point, I'm not sure. Like, I agree that 9 11 is like sort of the big daddy of it, but I think that this stuff in modern times, I, I agree with Max, that, <laughs> the big um, mommy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the, they, uh, I agree with Max that JFK is like the start of all this, but I think that the anxiety around this particular moment is and why it spawned all of this is a combination of the Iraq invasion and WMDs, mm -hmm. right? And, yep. and and then like 2008, right? But much more, like, it's just very difficult to, you know, um, believe anything about any type of invasion because of the right. WMD thing. And the way that the WMD thing was, uh, the WMD thing, I don't know why I keep calling it that, but, you know, like the way that it was processed was actually a critique of media, yeah. right? It was not... I, like I the think people sort of yeah. expected Dick Cheney and Paul Wolfowitz, all these people to lie to us. Right. But it was the real offense was around um, oh, what's what's her name at the new Drew, Judith Miller. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and and all these op ed writers sort of lining up and saluting the flag and sort of buying into all this stuff that, you know, a lot of people at the time were screaming were wrong. Like, I think that was. I think that's pretty front and center in people's minds. And I don't think it's just the left, right? I also think this is a large, large portion of the right. Yeah. You know, that oh, yeah, for sure. Very, yeah. yeah. We think say. of conspiracy theories as right wing ones, but I guess what I'm kind of saying, maybe Max agrees, is like, I think we are, we should probably also acknowledge that a lot of leftist thought takes the form of, quote unquote, leftist thought takes the form of conspiracy as well. Um, yeah. Right. Which is like, there's this big corporate, like corporate America or whatever, this like blob. Yeah, I mean, we should say everything you, you know, hate, right? Is, right. And yeah. we could say, too, like one of the reasons people believe in conspiracy theories is because literally there are conspiracies. Like there are right. lots of conspiracies. You can point at so right. many examples of history of stuff that seems deeply so too, too evil to be true to actually be true. Right. And, you right. know, part of the again, like one of the many challenges is this kind of like, OK, well, given that, how do we like how do right. we like make right. a functioning society where you, you know, raise a kid and you have an MBA right. and all this stuff right. that, you know, where, where you can sort of trust people a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just, uh, you know, that's the height that I was thinking for this podcast, at least for this audience, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like the height of a civilized society is the existence of the national. Right. It's like we read Woj Suisse and try to reverse engineer who they're talking how about. How do you yeah. have an MBA? <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. So, okay. Do you mind if I nerd out for like two minutes? Because I, I, I have a broader point, but I think I have to yeah. explain. So, okay. I always, when, on Max's point about like, how do we, what do we replace it with? I, I always kind of think about this broader mythological thing that Marx does in Capital. So really quickly, Marx is, presents the book by saying, the world looks like pretty simple. There's a lot of money and there's a lot of things and we just buy things <clears> with our money. On the other hand, there's a clear contradiction. If you're always buying things at equal value, like $10 of money buys $10 of bread, how do you explain people getting rich? How do you explain the economy actually growing? How does capitalism actually work? And so he, you know, he, he starts with what appears very visible on the surface, tries to probe that, and he gets to his you know, secret answer, which is there's one thing that you buy that actually creates wealth for everyone else, and that is labor, right? Um, and what always stuck with me, kind of thinking about this later, is like his method of presentation is not about, um, you know, 
you sheeple believe in this thing that's wrong and I'm going to tell you the truth, right? He tries, and this comes from like his philosophical background where the point is to take what is readily available to probe what is, you know, the appearances to get to the essence. But that essence is not just throwing away what's visible. It's actually like accounting for what's visible and those contradictions and so on. Because, you know, like the, the Hegelian point is like, if you just replace one thing with another, then that thing you replace with could be replaced with another thing. And that's called the bad infinity. And that just leads to nothing. Yeah. True knowledge comes from working through the contradictions of what you can see to get to. So I've always thought about that in terms of like, if you just, if the, a lot of this conspiratorial thinking is let's just tear things down, what you see, you can't believe anything you see. Let's just replace it with a different reality. Then that, that doesn't, that's not going to last. Right. Cause that's just going to be torn down again over and over and over if you're going to provide a sort of critique of how society works, you have to actually account for all the things, you know, that yeah. are also visible, right? Um, and it has to be, you know, sublated. It has to like build upon yeah. right, what is visible. Um, and so, and that also gets this point of like, well, if the leftist actually wants to win anything, they have to win over people who disagree with them. You have to like aim towards a broader theory of how yeah. the world works. You can't just have my theory versus your theory. Like a lot of, you know, leftists and rightists, they just really, I think a lot of them are really happy with just being on a team mm-hmm. that yeah. disagrees with other teams, but yeah. they're not really interested in like persuading the other side, you know, to, right. and accounting for like why you think the way you think and, and so on. Um, so that, uh, that's, that's what kind of what Max was suggesting. And that's what I kind of think conspiracy theories, um, you know, Max, what Max was talking about kind of reminded me of that point, which is like conspiracy theories and this sort of like, idea that everything everything you you're seeing is just like this mirage yeah replaced by something else i think that's not actually leftist or progressive it doesn't really end up anywhere it just replaces one reality with another yeah yeah the, the sort of the most basic version of this isn't even conspiracy theories or of what you're talking about i think it's like the endless kind of play of hypocrisy accusations from like one side of to another there's sort of like if, if you know the idea that you're that somehow you're just going to tear everything down by revealing that everybody is hypocritical or whatever and it's sort of like this is just there's 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 right this, I mean, you talk about a bad infinity like that's that's right. what twitter is right right, right. <laughs> yeah it yeah. really is yeah yeah i you know the weirdest part about all this is that i don't actually think that there's much disagreement amongst the left or the right about what should be done about ukraine right yeah like, I think everyone's kind of okay with what Biden is doing, right? Like, there's no faction, actual faction in the U.S. calling for, like, a no-fly zone, right? Other than, like, I don't know. It it's seems like, like cable a- news a- reporters. Actors. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like Sean Penn and Wolf Blitzer. <laughs> right. Like, it's like a bunch of celebrities, but I don't know. It seems like sanctions and, you know, aren't, like, it seems like most people are like, okay, sure, you know, just, and then, like, I think that if they started sending, like, can you imagine if they started sending troops there? Like, I just think that it would be political death, but yeah. it also, I mean, outside of actual death. And so it's strange because there is, like, this warring thing, but it all revolves around something that most people agree upon, you know? Like, it's like, there's no, like, actual policy differences it's just a yeah. choice of interpretation, you know, like of of what you actually think is happening. And then, yes, there are wingnuts like, you know, like Candace, Candace Owens, like going out and sort of like spewing, you know, Russian propaganda or stuff like that. But I don't know what that proves, you know, like um, like 
I don't know. Is she compromised by Russia? Maybe. I have no idea. It's yeah. kind of unlikely to me. But like, you know, like um, it seems more that she's just like a complete contrarian and is just going to always like pivot that sort of way. Do you know what I mean? Isn't so, Tucker Carlson also doing pro-Russia stuff? Like what is the end game? I mean, I guess... I guess it's that just hurt Biden and uh, right, kept right. Trump it's back just in the office. Right? I mean, maybe Tucker Carlson is. Con- I have no idea. I mean, it'd just be weird. What does like compromised by Russia mean? You know, um, <laughs> I mean, I guess some people have very vivid ideas around that, but um, it's weird. Andy, I have a question for you. Yeah. Do you feel like some of the heat is off China? You know. <laughs> um, no, it's a good question. I think, and I think people are pivoting to like, well, what's going to ha- What does this mean for China? Um, and, and yes, I've, so when you all talked about like, are you just being a, a parrot for Russia on my timeline, which is like heavily, you know, towards Asian news, like I've seen a lot of don't be a parrot for China. Don't like, don't, don't repeat the talking points that the Chinese administration wants. So there is that fear still, right. That how you report the news is going to be biased. I, I mean, I think, no, I mean, I, I think ultimately like part of the, like the liberal, or like from Mearsheimer to whatever, like their whole morale is like, we should get out of Russia because the real enemy is China. Mm, yeah. Like, I think that, that, that is yeah, that part is of Mearsheimer. So, right. Yeah. But that's also, I think a lot of the kind of political common sense behind don't do a no fly zone. Don't get, don't get, you know, ensnared in Europe. Well, like we had to save our bullets for the Chinese. Yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah. And, and I, yeah. So, I don't actually know what's happening. Like, I think there's last I read or last I saw was like, there's, I don't know, like, the, sorry, legacy media is trying to like pin part of this on China by saying like, you know, Russia told China yeah. that they were going to be, China vigorously denies it. Yeah. And like they were saying, he said it during the Olympics, right? We're right, going right, to wait right. after the Olympics. <laughs> and then, and then Chinese representatives. We need to win the figure skating gold medal. And we're going to go invade Ukraine. (laughs) There was, yeah. And then, yeah, now like the, I forget the representatives, like not Biden, but like some U.S. representatives talking to Chinese representatives soon. And like, I guess Ukraine is going to be the heart of all that. So I think China on the surface is, the Chinese state is like on the surface saying like, we don't support war. We want this to end quickly. But on the other hand, like their actions are not necessarily like anti-Russia. They're still kind of holding out that connection but um i don't know i, I do i do think like in, in general the this doesn't at all i think change the common sense understanding that china's the future rival for the u.s to deal with right i agree with that i don't yeah. think that that's changed in any sense i mean i think it's just and, and i do think that it's like weird to see how i don't know i guess this always happens and i think people forget how quickly People went to Freedom Fries and, you know, um, I mean, they, what was it? Victory Cabbage. Like, that was in World War II, but like Freedom Fries and stuff like that. Like it happened overnight, you know, and yet there's still something a bit unsettling about, you know, the pouring out of vodka and the sort yeah. of Russian stuff just because it seems like people don't have a great grasp on, you know, I mean, I don't know. I think that this is not to say that I don't think that this is particularly morally complicated as a war, you know, like. Yeah, invasion of a country is bad. You know, yeah. like I think everyone agrees about that. Yeah, but um, but it is strange to see how the like a kind of jingoistic American patriotism 
is invoked when there's no military response, you know? And we're, yeah. And it's like, it's kind of not our problem in a lot of ways, you know? But um, I don't know. I guess it's just like, it's weird. And also weird to me how dominant this is over the news. I thought people would stop caring about it at this point, you know? And like, we would move to like projecting whether or not Trump was going to run or not. Um, but maybe that's next week. Um, no, I, I mean, I think this is pretty central to like U.S. foreign policy, like Europe and right. But Russia. when has people ever cared about U.S. foreign policy? Um, I don't know. It, it is tapping into some weird, like three generations ago, Cold War nostalgia. Like there is something right. triggering for, I guess, yeah. like our age and up. You know, like, yeah, maybe right. people younger than us have no feelings about Russia as as the enemy. But uh, I was young enough just to remember, like, you know, becoming vaguely aware that Russia was the enemy. And so I'm sure like people who are older are just like, they're just ready to go. Oh, they've been triggered. They're yeah. the dormant uh, Russophobia. And like Putin is just like a very easy, you know, like if you're he's looking for, yeah, like, if you're looking for an enemy yeah, he's a bad dude. <laughs> he's a bad dude. I was thinking, I was like, what? I was like, I was trying to think about what made, of all the things that people like sort of around the world are saying about Putin, what made him the maddest. And I decided that it was him being, uh, stripped of his title as the world world judo federation <laughs> president <laughs> that's gonna have to be part of any negotiations i know it really is he's the, like listen i don't title. care about any of this stuff except you know i need my he's like do you know how much do you know how much money and time i've spent into building judo worldwide <laughs> you know? like, um yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a strange I, I was, time. All right. Is there anything else we need to say about disinformation here? Andy, or I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. What were you no, I mean, this isn't related to disinformation. I was just saying, I was talking, well, it could be. I was talking to, you know, someone who knows more about Russia than I do at this weekend. And they were saying that they think this idea that either Putin's going to be, you know, offed by his inner guard or oligarchy or whatever, that this is the last stand for Putin is kind of a Western fantasy that, Oh yeah. That if you look and maybe it's disappearing, but I think a week ago I was like, yeah, like this guy's going down, you know, <laughs> at some point. And uh, he was kind of saying like, he thinks Putin has another 10 or 15 years or however long he's alive. Like, um, but, but it is sort of like, it, get, it raises this question of like, to what extent is the news kind of, colored by like like cheering for the, a certain result yeah um, yeah like the pr coverage of the protests i think the people who are anti-war protesting in russia are super are incredibly brave people and i you know um i think and i think that uh they are right and i think that they deserve all the support that we can give them from our compromised position but i think that there also has been some misunderstanding of how big those protests are in Russia, in part because obviously it's illegal, you know, but um, I don't know. You read some of the polling about this war within Russia from places that are somewhat reputable, right? Like places that five weeks ago you would have really relied on their <laughs> sense of it. And I don't know. It doesn't seem like there's a huge national, you know, it's not, it's not outrage um, in the same way that, you know, um, I don't know. I mean, it's the same thing as like the invasion of Iraq here, right? Yeah. Like you would think that everyone was pissed off, but they weren't really, you know, which is why. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, this stuff with like pouring the vodka out, it just doesn't to the, I mean, that, that to me is like the, one of the dumbest things about this because a really good way to, to sort of 
maybe you don't get a rally around the flag of it effect or whatever in Russia, but you get this kind of defensive nationalism. If you just see a bunch of images of Americans acting and Canadians acting like assholes about Russian food and Russian people. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It just seems really counterproductive if the point is to, to like support show solidarity to Russians who don't want this war. And are, right. are, yeah. Are that's arguing but against sanctions, like yeah. sanctions don't actually have a political effect and they're just going to create animosity <clears throat> For yeah. generations right for people who right through it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've, yeah i've been i've kind of changed my well i don't know if i've changed my mind i'm like i don't know i was kind of waiting for for the critique of sanctions and now there's a couple that have emerged um there's a place in m plus one about it yeah. um and in dissent and you know when i hear sanctions i think of iraq and i think of the the critique of sanctions there like chomsky called it a wmd um and i guess it took a while but like yeah like people yeah. started to criticize it but for the first few days, people were like, yeah, sanctions are great. Yeah, I mean, it was basically like, I mean, it was sanctions and people cheering on things like the Apple store is now closed in Moscow, which I was just like, oh, the McDonald's. Jesus yeah. Christ, you know, <laughs> who cares? <you> know? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> like, at the Apple store in Berkeley, you have to, uh, you have to sign up to go in the store and you go in and you're like, I'd like to buy X. And they say, uh, can you, that'll be 40 minutes. And then I'm like, I'm no, I literally, I'm just, just need to go over there and buy that thing. <laughs> Who cares that the Apple store is closed? <laughs> but, um, it was, it was, it was like the Apple store is bad. And it was, um, people cheering on Biden when he was like, we're going to seize their yachts. And I don't know. It just seems like it, it was all a way of saying like, we're not going to, do anything except starve a lot of russian people yeah um but i or, don't know i think that it's I, I i agree with you andy but i also just think that like uh there has to be some political response right and um and that's basically the least they can do um, yeah and i don't think that it like does anything and i would but i think i also think that from the perspective of Washington, they have to, they just felt like they have to do something, even though they know that they're ultimately not going to really do anything, you know? Um, and all the sanctions have, of course, had all those carve outs in them about oil, right? Which is yeah. the only thing that, that, that Europe really buys from Russia. So I don't know. It's yeah. They ev- yeah. I mean, they eventually cut it off, but, and then there's like right. the consequences for, European commodities like we actually feed a bunch of people in the developing world. Right. And so there's always like yeah. knock on effects that there's yeah. like, if <clears throat> do they send a thing about revenge, that doesn't matter. But like there's actual right. real life consequences of this stuff. Um, okay. Well, uh, Max, is there anything you want to plug here? No, you just should replug your Substack. Please, yeah. yeah, please come sign up, maxreed.substack.com. Yeah. Um, I lurk in the TTSG Discord, so um, <laughs> be, <laughs> be kind to my. Yeah, yeah. I, this is like how I get. I, I'll, not just TTSG, but like I'm not really on Twitter anymore, so I get all my. Uh, that's the new. Hack. Yeah, yeah. All my Max news, them out. stuff. Yeah, I'm in a couple like Patreon or like or like Substack Discord. Can you like elaborate in the Substack you wrote about the Adam Two's followers? Can you elaborate on this <laughs> phenomenon you've been witnessing? I just I, I just know- noticed. I mean, I, I I will I will admit, cop myself to being like a, a convert to like thinking about the economy through the lens of. Uh, so Adam Two's is like a Columbia historian yeah. who wrote a big sort of the definitive history of the global financial crisis, and he has this newsletter called chart book 
that he's been doing for maybe a year now, maybe a little longer. He has yeah. a new book about the pandemic. And he's become this kind of figure, this like, he's not, I don't know if he's a Marxist, Andy. I don't know if he would be in your little black book, but he's like, he doesn't want to be. No, he's like he's he's like. A, <laughs> That's what you say about everybody. Dude, this is a okay. self. This is self deprecating when but I say it, this. But like I'm, also, not, I'm not trying to keep anyone out. Okay. It's like meaningful. <laughs> like what it's meaningful for two is because he's this really interesting figure because he is like very well respected by like the Davos crowd and like by right. like you yeah, know yeah, the, totally. the people of the world. But he actually has read Marx and he converses with Marxists and he engages with leftists in a way that is like. Yeah. not condescending and not like an enemy or whatever. So yeah. he's like, he's absolutely like worth reading. Anyway, there, I have noticed this sort of phenomenon of guys I know who like five, yeah. six years ago were just kind of like <laughs> entry, like D, entry level, like DSA Bernie guys who have all started subscribing to like twos and Matt Levine, this Bloomberg finance columnist. And they're really into like, you know, uh, sort of thinking about the global financial system and they're dropping all their, they're talking about CapEx and, you know, whatever <laughs> else. It's very, I mean, it's like, and like I said, I, I, I consider myself implicated in that particular. Yeah, yeah. yeah me too. Me too. <laughs> but it's like, I read, like I read Levine's thing. entire series about the price of nickel i know man like, i'm like, like i'm a nickel guy out the price of nickel and i was like you know i was like wow this is fascinating i, like, I mean to wow. truth, truth be told i understand like 40 percent of it i'm not a like a math guy or like a concepts guy but like you know oh i don't understand yeah like the two stuff is a phenomenon like among historians because like how does he have the time to write basically an Seriously. article a day and yeah. um yeah you know. and he talks <laughs> I mean, about like he, I taught this book last week. Like, how did you teach a book? Yeah, a he's on like day. six podcasts a week and he's doing this and that. Uh, uh, but I, I was curious to see like from the, like from outside the historian bubble, you are seeing him gradually. I would like, say expand in Twitter or social media. Men of my disposition <laughs> yeah. and background. Mostly men, like, that's, right, yeah, yeah. That's like college yeah. educated men between the ages of like 29 and 40. There's like a real, there's a no, small no. fandom developing, you know, I left. feel like there's, he's going to spawn um, um, imitators too. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, because yeah, it's they're, they're like prepackaged to... intellectual takes, you know. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. more than just oh, like yeah. a Bloomberg column. It's like here's the thing, though. It's very hard to write all the time. Yeah, he's got to have. That's, he's he's that's a problem. Like he's just he's 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 graphomaniac. Right. There are not that many people who are graphomaniacs, and the people who are have a huge advantage over everyone else I know. because they can just write endlessly. Um, like Tyler Cowen is one. You know. Yeah. Or just like. He can write all the time and he has forever. And I have no idea if Tyler Cowen is like a good economist or a bad economist, but I know he is like the most prolific economist, which means that, you know, people are going to take him much more seriously. Well, not more seriously, but they're going to take, they're going to take him period more than, um, you know, they might somebody who's a little volume. Volume is the name of the game. You just got to, but two is pretty good too. I think, you know, in addition to all of that, like he seems like he has good, he does have a certain veneer about it, him, him though. There's just nobody. I don't think there's anybody. I mean, you know what he, I was saying to a friend, uh, New York mag has a profile of him coming out this week, actually. So you guys will get a preview, but I I was saying to Molly Fisher, but I was saying that, He's like, he's my, this is, this is not really what he, this is not like, a, this is not going to sound like an advertisement, but I think structurally he's kind of the Ross Douthat of the left. Like he's this guy <laughs> who gets taken seriously by like centrists and like yeah, right, 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 right people, but he is also this sort of gateway drug to further left to post Keynesian and even sometimes Marxist right, or Marxian right. economist. Yeah. And, and, a, and a no, I like, I, I definitely like, if, and I wonder if this is a generational thing. Like I, I've, 
I made this commitment or not commitment decision to like, I should actually like read, you know, numbers yeah. and, and, and understand the economy in addition yeah. to cri- criticizing it. Yeah. And maybe it is about access. Now everyone can access these things and yeah. they can look at a chart and basically understand what it says. But I do think that's like a thing. That, uh, <laughs> and I think the, there didn't, there didn't really used to be stuff. It was like, if you wanted to give yourself a lefty or even post Keynesian, like uh, education and economics, it was much harder to do. It's like access, but also like I mean, know, economics departments in universities yeah. are so so right wing. He's like, not an economist, right? And, and right all, all all the people who do this are usually either outside economics departments or in their right. heterodox departments, which is like four schools in the country. Like, oh, right, really? yeah, New okay. school, UMass, Notre Dame, you know. Right. Oh. Um, that makes sense. So, is that what Pete Buttigieg's dad was at Notre Dame? Was he no, he was guy? literature. He was doing, uh, <laughs> like, Italian, right. I think, like, Italian like literature. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, but it, like, that's the kind of thing that in college was like the rage, like to read Gramsci, which yeah. is like a cultural right. critique. But now I think people my age younger are just like, no, let's just make some charts. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because it's so easy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That sounds bad for me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Luckily, you know, I only have about 15 years left before I (laughs) hit the the old retirement bed. Um, Okay. Well, Max, thanks for coming on. Everyone subscribe to Max's Substack. If you'd like to uh, support the show, you can support us at goodbye.substack.com. You can email us at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or you can reach out to us on Twitter. Our Twitter address is at TTSG pod. Um, when you support the show, you get access to our discord, which has very lively all the time. People conversate about a lot of things. I can't, I don't think I've ever actually used the word conversate. Like <laughs> Converse, a, I think is the real word. Conversate. Um, and they talk about, uh, all sorts of stuff, television shows, organizing, NBA, NBA, the NBA channel is very active, and um, a lot of, I don't know, I always find the funniest conversations in there about like movies and television and stuff like that, and, um, yeah, that's about it, uh, thanks, cool, bye. Sei con me, con me, come a luna, sei qui con me.